Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 34 of my podcast, I Stand Strong. I, as always, am Teddy, coming at you from my bear cave in the concrete jungle of the beautiful Midwest. Um, Yeah, not going to lie, my head's a little fuzzy. I'm getting over a cold, so I may also sound a little funny. Sorry about that. But um, So I can't remember what I talked about on my last podcast. I want to say it was my... Discussion on uh, the entire franchise of Nightmare on Elm Street. But, yeah, whatever. I, like I said, my head's fuzzy, and I apparently did not do enough research on that. But, um, anyways, um, yeah, so today is one that's been kind of a long time in the making to me. Um, I have recently wrapped up watching all 11 seasons of one of my favorite shows, from when I was growing up, uh, that being MASH. Um, so I guess I'll start with just giving kind of a little thing of, you know, like what, what brought me to MASH was I remember as I was growing up, we'd have dinner and right after dinner, we'd go and as a family, we usually, usually sit down and turn on channel 12 on our TV and it would be an episode of MASH. Um, and then followed by, I think it was usually like Next Generation or, you know, Star Trek Next Generation or something like that. I can't remember whatever, what show followed it. But I remember Next Generation was another one we used to watch a little bit as a um, as a family, too. But, uh, but it was, no, MASH was, was a show. And, like, you know, I did not realize how little I understood that show until I've rewatched it recently. But, um yeah, I mean, it just, it stuck with me to the point that, like, I remember when my parents decided they wanted to start talking about, um, you know, the inevitable of them, you know, them passing. Um, I guess some of my sisters didn't really want to talk to them about it, but I'm like, you know what, if this is some, if this is a conversation you guys want to have, sure. And really all it boiled down to is they want to know if there's anything of theirs they wanted that, that I wanted. And I remember telling my mom, I'm like, you know, if, you know, if there's something you want to get, you know, if there's something I could take from you guys, it has no monetary value to most people, but she had all the box sets of MASH on DVD. And I told her, you know, you can, you can give me those box sets when you guys die. It's something that'll, it has a nostalgia purpose of watching it with my family as well as, you know, it's a good show. Um... And then, but I remember she's like, well, God, if you want those, you can have them now. So I basically that day I took home what I later found out was only the first 10 seasons and then a DVD of just the final episode. Um, Goodbye, farewell, and amen. Um, And then, so I had to buy season 11 myself. But anyway, so I, I have all the seasons and... For some something sparked it to like you know I'm just decided I was gonna sit down and watch the entire show beginning to end and you know like relive some memories and like I said I I did not remember the 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 gravity of that show when I was watching I remember the comedy stuff to it like the pranks and. Klinger running around in his, you know, running around dressed as a woman trying to get a section eight. But I didn't realize just how ranged the show was. Um, 
And then I remember I, at some point in time, like, you know, I liked the show so much, I went and tracked down the movie at one point in time and watched it. And it was, that was another shock to me was how, how different the movie was. Cause the movie was a little more of a, um, dry sense of humor. Um, as well as it was pretty much just a really good backbone for what the, the show would become. But, um, and I also didn't know until just recently that the even the movie was based on a book. Um, but, you know, I've never read the book. I own the movie now because I wanted to rewatch it after watching the the, the entire show. Because I wanted to just remember, like, the differences. And, you know, but, you know, because of that, I started doing the research into figuring out, like, how did the show come to be? Was it just because the movie was such a success? on its le- its own kind of level that they just, just, you know, they wanted to make a TV show and they decided to go their own way with it or what. And I guess it was originally supposed to be a second movie, but that never really seemed to get out of limbo to the point that they made it into a TV show. And as much as I love the cast of the movie, um, you know, like Donald Sutherland, Elliot Gould and them, I prefer the cast of the TV show better. I think the TV show really does... A better job and and that's just my personal opinion but um but yeah so let, let, let's get into this show because you know you're talking about a what a show that went 11 seasons that was about god i wish i would have looked this up because i remember it's only like what like a two or three year police action you can't see my uh air quotes um so we'll say a two to three year war and they did 11 seasons about just this really quirky group of people in a mash in Korea. So, uh, you know, to those that don't under, don't know, um, a mash stand, mash stands for mobile army surgical hospital. So it's these people that aren't too far away. They're not really that far away from the front lines. And every day they are almost every day. They're facing just amazingly horrific things. And they're not even there voluntarily, most of them. I mean, most of them were drafted to it. You know, they were they were surgeons, so they needed them, so they drafted them in. And, you know, that's why you have, you know, like, Hawkeye, and in the original seasons, you have Trapper John as his kind of sidekick. You know, they're, they're not, they don't want to be there. They want to, you know, they would much rather be in America, especially, you know, so they didn't want to be at war, let alone a war that's, you know, horrific as this one, you know, some of the stuff they're facing. So, like, growing up watching it, I guess I didn't really realize the war aspect of it. I just remembered all, like I said, the, the more funny aspects of it. You know, kind of the womanizing, even though I didn't even understand that one to the full extent. I mean, we're talking about a show that, when I was growing up, I always thought I was watching new episodes. Now I come to find out I was only two years old when the show went off the air. So, um, you know, I mean, it, it was, what, 72 to 83. I mean... I'm 42 years old and I didn't even realize that, you know, like I said, until recently, I didn't even realize I ne- I wasn't seeing new episodes as they were airing. I was, everything I saw was reruns. Um, but anyways, you know, like, so yeah, you've got this cast of characters that are dealing with a horrible situation all in their own ways. Keep it, you know I mean? And that's kind of the, the beauty of the show to me was like how everybody is dealing with it. And there was, I mean, like Hawkeye, you know, 
he is the the center of the show. I mean, he is the surgeon that doesn't want to be there. He's a bit of a womanizer. <coughs> Sorry about that. Um, but at the same time, you know, you kind of quickly gather that what he's doing is purely just because he doesn't want to face the horrors of what he's seen every day when these soldiers come in, most of them like barely, you know, barely of age, you know, by modern standards, I guess, yet they're out there fighting a war and he's just piecing them back together so they can hopefully like, so these generals and whatnot can hopefully send them right back to the front lines. Um, and so, yeah, it, it makes for this, this show that's funny, but with this really kind of like dark subcontext. And to me, like as much as I love the comedy of it, I really think where the show stands out the best is in the episodes where it's really kind of playing with how the realities of the situation they are in, you know, messes with their heads and like, you know, so you, you have a lot of great episodes that not only were, not only is it Hawkeye that's being affected, but his, you know, Trapper, um, freaking Hot Lips Houlihan, which, you know, Loretta Swit is amazing in that role. You know, Frank Burns is kind of, I think the only one that I always got the feeling was never really fully touched by the war because he was so stuck up his own butt, so to speak, that, you know, the horrors of the war never really got him per se. Um, but then, yeah, I don't know. It, it's just, it, it's really kind of hard to put the, the feelings on why this show stands out is to me, probably one of the best shows that ever has run start to finish. Like, I mean, I have a lot of shows I like, like I loved game of Thrones, but you could take a couple of those seasons away and I'd have no problem with it. Like, you know, season five on really like about the time they catch up with where the books have been game of Thrones kind of falls off a little bit. Um, Smallville has one or two seasons where it falls off. And I love Smallville, but MASH, like, I don't think there was a season. There may have been episodes here and there where I'm like, eh, yeah, it's not as great as other ones. But as a whole show, it, it like, especially after this re rewatching I've done recently, it has got to be one of the best written shows that's ever been put out there. I mean, and really, uh, in some aspects, you could put it in any war and the show would have the same feel. I mean, the fact that they're in Korea really is just kind of, you know, the fact that that's where the book was written about, so they kind of kept it there. But then, you know, watching some special features that are on some of the, on the, the disc of the finale, they talk about the fact, like, a lot of people thought it was supposed to be in Vietnam because that was a war that was going on while the show was airing. Um so it, it's really kind of impressive the fact like you could you could probably put it in a more modern war and it would probably feel that it'd be the same show but with the same you know or it'd have the same context to everything um i don't know it's just it's i i got you know i'm i'm, tr I'm trying not to ramble here but you know um you know so, so i guess i'll just kind of get into like some of the some of the characters that stand out to me. I mean, of course, there's Hawkeye, you know, played amazingly by Alan Alda, both in the 
really comical parts and amazing when it comes time to doing the drama sequences. I mean, I lost track of how many times, especially in some of the later seasons that I was tearing up through some of the, you know, through some of the moments, just the, the actors stepped forward. But, um, but yeah, and I, I, God, I don't even know how to word this stuff. Um, maybe this one was one I should have had somebody else kind of moderating me and talking about it, but I don't know. Um, but yeah, then, you know, like Trapper come, you know, is like kind of this sidekick, which I'm not a huge, like, I actually prefer some of the, the, the secondary guy that comes in. Um, like I don't mind Trapper, but after the first three seasons, when they bring in BJ Honeycutt, I feel the show finds a little better ground because Trapper is kind of really is just another Hawkeye. There's really not a big philosophical difference between the two of them. Where with BJ, when he comes in, you know, he's happily married, you know, and he wants nothing more than to be at home in, uh, I can't remember what part of California he's from, but you know, he wants to be there with his wife and his kid that is for like, his kid is born shortly after he gets drafted. So like he never, he hasn't even seen it throughout the show. He has never actually physically seen his child and some of the stuff they can do with that is amazing. Where with Trapper, you know, in the beginning, you know, yeah, he's, he's married, but really he's just as much of a womanizer as Hawkeye is. Um, he really doesn't have any, to me, he really doesn't have as much of a, a difference to play off of for Hawkeye. Um, you know, but then you get into some, you know, like I already mentioned hot lips, you know, you've got this woman who was raised in a military life and that's all the life she's known. So she's, you know, she's she's a dedicated military person, but she's also like the head nurse and, you know. So she's got this kind of thing, but she's, you know, so she doesn't understand how, you know, these, you know, you know, uh, Hawkeye and Klinger who kind of comes in later in the first season becomes a a more substantial character. Um, you know, Trapper, she doesn't, she understand how they can just like have such contempt for the army because all she's known, well, that nursing, but then she's having, you know, this, you know, relationship with a married man in Frank Burns played amazingly by Larry Linville, um, who sadly passed now. I think he died a while ago. Um, but, you know, his his character, Frank Burns, is hilarious, too, because, yeah, once again, another like extreme military man. And he believes he's the greatest surgeon on Earth and even though, you know, a lot of people make reference to the fact that he's a horrible surgeon. Um, but he's also a despicable person. I mean, he's he's one of those despicable people that everybody knows. And he's almost lovable about it sometimes. But then, like I said, you know, he's married. Yet he's having this, like, illicit relationship with Hot Lips. And that's kind of this joke that... They don't believe that Hot Lips and uh, Frank don't believe anybody else know what's going on. Yet everybody in the camp knows it's going on. And, you know, then you have all the, you know, the, the back and forth between them of, you know, Margaret wants to be his only one. And 
he's afraid of a divorce from his wife because of what it will mean for his social status, essentially, is what I've always picked up on it and whatnot. And probably probably also a money thing, you know, from what I remember. Um, but yeah, so you have the, you know, that, and then, um, like I said, you have Klinger who comes in, um, I want to say he was in the first episode, but he's not really a main character till like probably mid to midway till the end of the first season. He becomes a more regular reoccurring character of, you know, this guy from Toledo, Ohio, who's, you know, the first time you see him, he is wearing a dress, but then at the end of the the first episode you see him in, he's fully naked because he's just trying to, you know, he's doing everything he can to get discharged from the military on a Section 8 insanity clause. And he makes for some of the most fun in in those times. You know, like there's the 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 infamous episode where he tries to escape with a hang glider and he's wearing these pink fluffy slippers and everybody keeps making this joke about they saw this big red bird with pur- furry pink feet. Um and then you have uh the original like, you know, commanding officer of this mash for the mash 407 7th Henry Blake who I like the character but once again, I think he kind of like in the long run of the show, he kind of falls short to me for the fact that he's kind of a pushover. Like he doesn't ever want to make the decisions. You know, if he has to do a, a speech about sex, he's just falling all over himself. Once again, another happily married man has kids, yet he's womanizing. But he's he's more fun about it to me. But um, but yeah, it's. And so those first three seasons with that... Oh, I, I almost forgot, you know, Corporal Walter Radar O'Reilly, who's actually um, Gary Burkhoff, the actor who plays him, is the only character, is the only person to be in the movies and the TV show. Because <coughs> <coughs> uh, Gary Burkhoff actually played, you know, he played Radar in the movie. Um... And but Radar was a very different character in the movie compared to the TV show. Like in the movie, he there's kind of like almost like a like a shady side to him. It feels like where in the show he's just this lovable young kid who's very you know very uh, you know immature into the world, so to speak. So you know he's he's kind of always hanging around Hawkeye and them trying to get the the download down low on how to kind of you know to be with a woman or to be the cooler person or whatnot. But at the same time, you know, he's that lovable kid that everybody, you know, he's everybody's little, you know, baby brother kind of thing. So everybody cares for him. Um, and you know, he's a company clerk and in the early seasons, you have all the stuff where, you know, like Henry Blake is going to call for radar and radar's already there, or he's talking over like, him and Henry Blake are, you know, Blake's trying to give him an order, but Radar's already like confirming the order as Blake's giving it because he already knows what Blake's going to tell him to do, or he's, you know, sliding papers, like blank papers in front of him and having him sign them. And he's like, why am I signing Blake papers? And it's, you know, Radar tells him, oh, so you don't have to sign them early, sign them later to cut down on your, you know, your workload and all this kind of stuff. So it's like, so like I said, you know, Blake, 
The Blake radar relationship is definitely awesome for those first three seasons while Blake's on the show. Um, but I kind of feel like, like I said, because Blake kind of is this pushover character, um, minus the radar stuff, I really kind of feel like he, you know, he just doesn't have the power that he could have had as a character. Even though he is kind of the lovable buffoon that, you know, when they do have the big episodes of drinking or whatever, he's usually pretty trashed pretty quickly and making a fool of himself and whatnot. Um, but yeah, I'm trying to think if there's any other characters that will. Of course, I, I meant to look up exactly what episode it is, but uh, you know, in that first season, you also have the the introduction of my favorite reoccurring character to never become like a main show character. Although I would have loved to have seen what they could have done if they would have kept him on, you know, on a regular basis is Sidney Friedman, who's a psychologist. And anytime he shows up on the show, it is guaranteed to be a great episode because not only does he have the, the actor, um, Oh, I can't remember his name now. Shit, I should have looked this up. Uh, anyways, Sidney Friedman, the, the actor that plays him, has this amazing comical timing, but at the same time, is very poignant with his, you know, his episodes. I mean, given every episode he shows up in, chances are it's an episode where they're dealing with something to do with how people are handling how people handle being in this horrible situation of being, you know, I think it's their three miles from the front lines and on a regular basis, they've got helicopters and ambulances rolling in with, from the front with wounded kids. They're patching them up just to hope to get them, you know, back to, I think it's souls where they send them to get, you know, uh, you know, to a better hospital basically to recuperate. And then chances are they're going back to the front lines. And Sidney Friedman really does like brings in these amazing moments of just like kind of making it clear that even though these people are acting insane in this situation, you'd almost, you'd be insane to just take it like a normal person. <clears throat> so it, you know, it, it is one of those things where, like, I, I, I really believe he becomes, like, to me, the best reoccurring character. Well, there's him, and then there's uh, Colonel Flagg, who is a spook and is just, like, they could easily have played him as just a very serious character. But he's he's definitely the Leslie Nielsen kind of comedy where it's like he plays everything so serious, like everything is like the most serious thing on earth. Even though most of the time what he's saying or doing is so goddamn ridiculous. Um, in fact, I love uh, I want to say it was I can't remember if it's Hawkeye or Friedman makes the comment in one of his episodes about how if there were more people like Flag, there'd be less people like him. <laughs> and like that makes a lot of sense, unfortunately. Um, but you know, it it's yeah. I'm 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 really trying to get this across, and I really don't feel like I'm doing a very good job of it. Um, 
But anyways, you know, yeah. So for three seasons, you have this core group of people, you know, and going through the good and the bad. And then at the end of season three, uh, the last episode, Henry Blake gets his discharge. So he's, you know, flying home, basically. And that you have this great episode that's a send off to uh, McLean Stevenson, who played Henry Blake. Where everybody, you know, does their, you know, everybody gets their kind of chance to say goodbye to him. And, you know, they get him this really fancy suit that he can go home in to be with his wife. And, um, you know, you get a, a really good, you know, some really good moments with him saying goodbye to Hawkeye and Trapper. Uh, by this point in time, Clinger's on like every episode and he he made a special dress just for this farewell he looks like the chiquita lady and it cracks me up and of course you know blake comes down and says you know you know clinger i'm pretty sure that outfit may just get you that section eight and clinger you know is kind of tearing up a little bit but he's like thank you sir you know i made this just for this thing i had to put it on so quickly i didn't even get to zip you know didn't even get to zip myself up and blake you know blake kind of casually looks at him and says I'll do it for you. So, you know, Klinger turns around and he goes to grab the zipper and you just hear Klinger, it's up, sir. Thank you. And he zips him up, you know, and that's kind of his farewell to to Klinger. And then, you know, he's about to go get on the helicopter and Hawkeye whispers something in his ear and he kind of looks back at Margaret and Frank and says something along as you think I should? And he's like, eh, what's, you know, Hawkeye just kind of gives him a look of like, you know, what's the worst that could happen? So, you know, Blake goes back to her and gives her this great big kiss, much to Frank's dismay. And then, you know, as he breaks it away, he's got this smile on her face. And you can see just Margaret just doesn't know what to do with herself because she's she's stumbling over herself. So obviously this was a hell of a kiss. Um, But the standout is really kind of the the goodbye he has with Radar because you do so much have this kind of father-son relationship between Radar and uh, Henry Blake. Um, So yeah, so he leaves the show on that episode. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit more about the power of that episode um, when I break down some of my favorite episodes that really kind of stood out to me. Um, But then... The first episode of season four, technically Trapper's gone. He, because in a very weird thing, it's like, I guess the, the, the actor that played Trapper basically left the show in between seasons. He decided he wasn't coming back. He didn't like the fact that his character was pretty much just a sidekick, um, you know, kind of uh, relegated to just rolling his eyes at, at a uh, Hawkeye's um, antics, but um, anyway, so yeah, so he he left the show, so they do they had to like kind of write themselves out of a corner in a way because they had to find a way to get rid of Trapper John, but get a good episode out of this situation without Trapper actually showing up on the show <coughs> or on the episode, um, and so they do the ep- this episode well, like. You know, God, I'm already talking about these episodes, technically. But so anyway, so you have Trapper leave, BJ Honeycutt comes in. And this is where, to me, where the show really stands out. Because 
BJ comes in in that episode, that episode, which is called Welcome to Korea. And at the end of that episode, you have Henry Blake's replacement take over much to, once again, much to Frank Burns, who thought he was going to be running the mash the second, you know, Henry Blake got let go um, or got discharged. But he, you know, they bring in Colonel Potter, Sherman Potter, uh, and played by the great Harry Morgan. And that, that this is where the show to me finds its best stuff. Cause I really like the fact that, you know, you bring in Sherman Potter, the, you know, very no nonsense, you know, he is a military guy, you know, he was there for WW one and WW two. And, you know, this, so this is his third war and he's, you know, but he's also a surgeon. So, you know, and nobody really knows what to expect of him when they hear, you know, they're getting a true military man who's going to be running this thing. But he ends up kind of becoming this this character that, yeah, he has to change the way he sees some things because, you know, being pure military, pretty much, he does have some different beliefs than, you know, say a clinger or, you know, he doesn't really understand the antics of... Uh, of Hawkeye and them, but he also has to come into these really big shoes of, you know, everybody loved Henry Blake and now here he comes and he's got to find his place and he's dealing with radar. Who's a, you know, who's still the company clerk and he's got to figure out how to, you know, kind of negotiate this new situation. And, it really, like I said, I really feel like he, for the fact that he doesn't take so much shit from them, he plays a, a much better kind of foil to the antics sometimes. Like he has no problem with the antics sometimes, but when it really ha when it really comes down to it, he will put the put the kibosh on it if it means looking better in front of like an inspection or whatever, where Henry Blake would kind of stumble over himself and you know, kind of be get pushed over and whatever they were going to do, they were going to do. Um, where with Sherman Potter, you know, they, if he, if he put his foot down, even Hawkeye would had respect enough for him to try not to push the envelope too hard. Um, yeah. And so, you know, then you, then you go, you know, what four seasons, four through, I want to say at seven, you have this core cast of, you know, of everybody running around, you know, doing their thing until season seven, you have, uh, at the end of season seven, Margaret gets married to, uh, Oh God, Donald Penobscot. And that puts, that kind of puts the, like most of season seven, like her and Frank are on the outs anyways. And it really kind of was clear that they really didn't know what to do with Frank anymore. So Larry Linville, Larry Linville leaves the show at the end of season seven. And it was one of those things where technically he never got a farewell episode because his, his last, you know, his episode of getting discharged um, is the first episode of season eight. And he got put on leave because like, basically he was cracking from the fact that Margaret got married and, he didn't know what to do with it. And then you, so for this full episode, you kind of get this long running tally of what he's doing. And it's like, you find out like he basically is going insane. Like he, he decided on this leave, he was going to try to find 
uh, Margaret and like beg her to take him back kind of thing. Um, and it ends with him just being like, basically, you know, he's, he's declared insane and sent home, but much in the, the, you know, the, the joke of the military standards, he fails upwards because they promote him back to the States and God, the, the, the laughs you can get off of watching uh, BJ Honeycutt and, uh, you know, Trapper John's reactions when they're, or not Trapper John, uh, Hawkeye, when they're told that basically he got promoted back to the States instead of just saying he got let go because, you know, he got discharged because he went insane. Um, and then they bring in another character that is partial to me, probably because I remember a lot of the episodes with him. Uh, the great David Ogden steers once again, rest his soul. Um, he plays, he comes in as this, you know, head, this amazing doctor in Tokyo who basically gets sent to them because they need a replacement for Frank Burns. But he has basically just been whooping this like Colonel's butt at, I want to say it was bridge. Um, or it might've been gin. I can't remember what it was now, but he, you know, this, this Colonel owes him all this money. So they decide to send him there. So he doesn't have to pay him the money. And he plays major Charles Winchester, Emerson Winchester, the third with this incredibly hoity toity accent. And, you know, he's, he's from Boston and he's a, you know, very wealthy family. And it's, it's just an indignation that he's stuck there in this, this hell hole. And, you know, he's always constantly arguing on why he should, you know, he shouldn't be here. You know, he should be, uh, you know, head of thoracic surgery at, I can't remember what the name of the hospital that he's, you know, he's always going on and on about how he was going to be the head of this, you know, this surgery, but then he got drafted and now he's suddenly in this meatball surgery and, you know, it, but it takes some time to get him to where it really goes where it's like, you know, he's, he doesn't want to be there, but he kind of learns that what he's doing there is important, not, but he still doesn't like it. Like, you know, he, he, you start seeing little cracks in the fact that he's, he's learning things. Like, I mean, he, like, I think the first episode he's there, like they're constantly hunting about the fact that he's taking so long to do his surgeries because he does, he has to do it very clean and meticulous. And they're like, listen, you can't afford to do that. We've got so many coming in and, you know, we're doing five, you know, five major operations in the time it takes you to do one, you need to speed it up. You know, this isn't about, unfortunately, this isn't about quality. It's about quantity. Um, cause a lot of these kids aren't going to survive if you don't do, like just get them basically quickly stitched and, you know, get the, you know, get the lead out literally most of the time. Cause most of the time they're pulling bullets and, you know, bomb, you know, bomb fragment or shrapnel out of these kids. Um, but at the same time, you know, he, he brings another aspect of, you know, like it is very challenging because Hawkeye is probably the best surgeon on the, on the, you know, in the mash until Emerson gets there, who is an amazing surgeon, but he's a horrible person. <laughs> he's once again, kind of that despicable person because to him class is everything. And, you know, he comes from the hoity toity family. So like he can't stand Klinger cause Klinger's from Ohio 
And, you know, he talks, he even talks bad about Honeycutt because he's from California and whatnot. So it's like to him, you know, like if you're not from Massachusetts and you don't, you know, drink this expensive cognac and listen to his, oh God, like all, like nothing against like classical music, but it's not my favorite. It's great for relaxing, but it's not something I'd listen to every day. But to him, you know, like that's the only music that should exist. And it is really fun, and then that's kind. Of, but that's kind of the core group you have until the end. Minus radar leaving at the end of season eight, radar leaves, um, and that that kind of does bring a weird twist to the show because it's like radar has always been there, so it's like, but it also does open up some really good you know avenues of Klinger becomes the company clerk, and so you have a good episode where it's, you know. Klinger trying to basically realize, you know, he's, you know, or everybody around him having to realize that they have to give him some time to get into this position because they've been so used to radar who's on top of everything. But then you also, but at that point in time, you also kind of start losing the Klinger cross-dressing stuff, which bothers me a little bit because I think that's kind of really fun. But instead they really kind of, they find a different avenue for Jamie Farr as Klinger to go with. And I really feel like it works. And, you know, but like I said, that's that's the core group for the rest of the show. Um, and it, it it's an amazing group of people. But then, you know, God, those later seasons, you also have some really, really big cameos in there. Like a very young Patrick Swayze comes in for a single single episode. Um, God, if if you're listening, you know who Andrew Dice Clay is, you know. He he makes an appearance in an episode. You know, Joey Pantoliano has an episode in there. Um, God, I've lost track of all of them now. I can't even think of them. I know there were more. But, you know, there's just all the... Like, Shelley Long pops in for a couple episodes as a nurse. Um, but it just... It makes... Like, it seemed like no matter what the... What the group was, though, they managed to really make a a great show of it. And most shows, I mean, you start, you start changing people in and out. It, it, it drops pretty quickly. Um, so like on that aspect, it is kind of crazy that, you know, like, yeah, you have what four or five major characters leave the show. Well, yeah, no one, two, I guess I guess you only have like three major characters leave the show. Um, well, no, yeah, four major characters leave the show, but one of them isn't replaced by a brand new actor, so um, or a brand new character. So you know, the fact that that works is actually to me pretty impressive. Like, but then again, they never just tried to make a an exact you know facsimile so to speak of a character when they change out somebody they try to bring a new angle and maybe that's why it worked um so yeah i guess um i will now start spot i guess i'll i'll talk about some of those episodes that really kind of you know re- really kind of stand out to me is like what what this show could do and like to me the episodes i guess it's the episodes that stand out to me um and so the first one I'm going with, uh, it was an episode. I, I should have looked this up. It's in one of the first two seasons, but it's called Dr. Dr. Pierce and Mr. Hyde. And in this one, 
it quickly becomes clear that it's the first kind of episode where they explore Hawkeye kind of cracking up. Um, and in this episode, it's like he's so just like destroyed by what he's seen that he's not sleeping. And as the episode goes, he starts getting more and more paranoid. And to the point like, you know, he's he's trying to understand like who started the war and what's this war really about? And but like the way they bring in some comedy is throughout the episode, Trapper is constantly just trying to like find some way of set, you know, getting Hawkeye to just collapse because like, you know, like they try just telling him, listen, you're banned from the OR for, you know, for a couple, a couple tour shifts just because you need to get some rest. But like, he'll go and lay down and the second he puts his head down, he heals, here's a helicopter and he's right back up and he's back in the OR. So it's like, I think by the time they, they get him to sleep, I think he goes like 36 hours and like, like even to the point, like the, like the subtle way he starts playing the, the paranoia is pretty impressive. And like Alan Alda really stands out in this one. Um, but like I said, you get a pretty funny moment where uh, Trapper and Radar are trying to like basically give uh, Hawkeye a sedative and they've got a needle and they're about to do something. I can't remember what happens, but somehow Frank gets in the way and Frank gets a shot in the butt to put him to sleep. And it, he just collapses immediately in this really funny moment. And it breaks the it breaks the tension for a second. But then you also get a really funny ending to it as far as like his last thing is like for some. I think it's like he's he's like he's like I said, Pierce is really trying to understand why this war is going on and. So he goes to like some seminar by from Frank and Frank Burns is doing this whole thing. And he, you know, so he asks him like, what is this war really about? And, you know, Frank goes on this long rant of like all these things that the, you know, the communist hate and somehow like indoor plumbing comes up and that sets, uh, that sets Pierce into believing, okay, if he sends them, the officer's latrine, he can stop the war. So he gets the idea he's going to like basically drag the latrine to to the enemy lines and like give it to them and thus ending the war. But this visiting general comes in and he has to go to the bathroom and he goes to get in the latrine and they try to stop him, but it's kind of too late. And so he gets dragged away. But they had given... They'd given Hawkeye some kind of like, I think it was like crushed up pills or whatever to sedate him. But unfortunately he got like, I think they say he gets like three quarters of a mile down the road before it kicks in and he stops pulling this, this latrine with the truck. Um, And yeah, it's this really great episode that once again, it shows, you know, the, the humor yet also kind of starts to play toy with the, you know, the true realities of the, what this war is doing to them. And like, you know, if it, if it can get to Hawkeye, clearly it can get to anybody kind of thing. Um, okay. The next one I'm going with, I've already talked about a little bit on this one is I'm going to probably massacre this, uh, Abyssinia Henry, which is the episode of Henry Blake's leaving. And I, I didn't talk about a key, a, a key part to that episode yet. Um, but yeah, so it's like the beginning of the episode, Blake gets the news he's getting discharged. So for the rest of the episode, it's kind of just everybody preparing like this big bash for him to go away. And 
you know, they, like, you know, like I said, uh, Pierce and uh, McIntyre get him this, this, these civi- civilian suit and, you know, every, they have a, a really big kind of, you know, send off for him. And then you have the tearful goodbye moment. But the episode that stands out and like watching those special features and finding out how they did this is amazing because they left pages off the script to 90% of the cast. The only people who knew what was going to happen at the very end of the episode was McLean Stevenson. And I want to say it was Gary Berghoff knew. So they did everything up until they filmed everything up until the end of the, um, you know, him leaving on the helicopter. And then they did like, I think it was, I think I heard, I think what they said is they, they basically set up like, Oh, we need to do just some like random, like surgical scenes that we want to put throughout the episode. And so they're doing these surgical scenes uh, this surgical scene it ends up being at the very end of the episode and the, the doctors are operating and in comes radar and he just looks beaten and he says he has news and everybody kind of goes quiet for a second. Like what? Okay. And you know, I think Hawkeye makes a joke about like, if it's my discharge, you know, don't hold back. Just let me have it kind of thing. But like radar kind of shrugs it off and says, uh, Henry Blake's plane was shot down over the Pacific, you know, just outside, I think it was just outside of Tokyo or whatever. The plane spun in, there were no survivors. And it makes for this amazingly just gut punch moment because you can see it on like the actors' faces, even though they didn't know what was about to happen. Like you can see it on their faces, just like that moment. And there's like this, Great thing, I guess it was not scripted. Like somebody accidentally drops a utensil, but then you have like the episode ends with like you know you kind of pan across the the you know the surgery suite, so to speak. You know the the ER or whatever you call it. Um, and their OR OR. Um, and you can just see the look on everybody's face. Like even Frank is like emotional in this moment, and then it ends with showing. Hawkeye and Trapper and they've got these sad looks on their faces, but they at the same time they have this look like we have to keep doing this. We got, you know, patience. And then everybody just starts going back to work, even though like you can see the just the heartbreak in everybody. And it is a great moment. And I think it's just better by the fact like they caught everybody naturally with their reactions. Um <clears throat> so yeah. That is a that is a great episode. Um, you do kind of have to watch all the other stuff to get to fully get why Blake is so you know like it's such a big loss that Blake passed. Um, but then okay, now we're getting into the first episode of season four, which is called "Welcome to Korea," and this is the one that introduces BJ Honeycut. And like I said, they had to do some creative writing to figure out a way to write Trapper off without actually showing him. So what they do is it's for some reason, you know, Hawkeye was on a, like went on a, a R&R release. You know, he, he basically got released for some R&R, but for some reason he went by himself, which is completely against everything you see in the show. Cause every time Hawkeye is going on R&R Trapper's going to. Um, so it's kind of weird that they did that, but they did what they had to do. And like, so, 
Hawkeye gets back and finds out that basically Trapper had left like 10 minutes ago because he had gotten discharged. So Hawkeye steals a Jeep and decides he he needs to go say goodbye to Trapper before he leaves. So he and he and Radar hop in a Jeep and basically drive and he misses he misses Trapper by like I think it is 10 minutes. Like he basically he's 10 minutes shy of of uh seeing Trapper before he takes off. But because they're there, they meet BJ Honeycutt, this fresh-faced doctor who just got drafted and he's coming in to replace Honeycutt. And the rest of the episode is kind of their journey back to the 4077th. And you have like, you know, like basically throughout this time you're seeing BJ realize the hell he's actually about to be a part of. You know, he he starts that episode as a very, very like optimistic guy, but like by the end of it, you kind of start seeing a little bit of cracks. Like, I mean, on their way, they see they get trapped in a mortar attack and they're having to patch up these, these kids that were just civilians. Like they weren't even soldiers. Um, and so you have a moment where, you know, like he pulls off, like he basically gets off to the side of the road and just pukes because it's like what he's seeing is so, horrific and he wasn't ready for it but then you also have some really lighthearted moments of you know they stop at a like they stop at rosie's bar which is like just outside the 407 7th and so when they actually get to the 407 7th they are just shit-faced and margaret and frank were really hoping to get a hold of bj before honeycutt before uh Hawkeye could so they you know because like oh he's this this crazy like if we could get him on our side kind of thing and unfortunately they don't and so like the the last episode last sequence of the episode is like basically they pull in just trashed and Frank Burns comes up to him and you know basically is trying to reprimand Hawkeye for you know abandoning his post to go go with uh radar and then he sees honeycutt and he's like oh you must be our new surgeon and he you know salutes and of course uh honeycutt who is probably five sheets to the wind at this point in time you know does this really sloppy salute and says what say you ferret face and it's just this great little kind of laugh off at the end of the episode and i want to say at the end of that episode they also do briefly show potter but it's the next episode where colonel potter comes like officially becomes a part of the the cast um and yeah so it's like it but it's a great episode to kind of show like you know you kind of get to see a a really quick turn of like what they 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 face come you know like what what somebody coming into this situation would be like from the beginning till like the realization and it goes a little fast with it, but at the same time, they they do also kind of play with his, you know, his way of dealing with the war in later episodes as well. Um, wow! In fact, actually, the the next episode I was going to talk about actually is one of those ones that does kind of tackle that for him. Um, throughout the show, there were a number of episodes that are most of them were called "Dear Dad," which are usually like these kind of episodes of, you know, it'll have Hawkeye sitting there writing a letter to his dad. Um, 
explaining what happened in the past week and you'll get like flashbacks of brief moments but they did do other ones like i know they do one with uh radar where he's writing his mom um they do one with clinger where he's writing i think it's like his uncle uh they do i want to say they do one with honeycut where he's writing his wife and kid <clears throat> but this one is is one that actually kind of centers around my favorite reoccurring character, Sidney Friedman, and it's called Dear Sigmund. And it's, it's kind of weird because he's basically writing a letter to Sigmund Freud, a man who's been dead for a long time. Um, and, but it's like he's at the, he's at the 407 7th because he got, I want to say it's like he got injured. Is this one? Yeah, I want to say this is one where he got injured. No, that's a different one. Never mind. I'll be talking about that one later. No, um, but he, anyway, he he's there, and throughout this episode, you've got like people just prank somebody. Like, there's a an anonymous prankster that's just been playing pranks on everybody. Like, you know, there's a great sequence where Potter's looking through some uh, binoculars and he takes his eyes away, and of course, there was like shoe polish on the lenses or whatever. So he's got the black circles around his eyes, and there's Radar who sees it and just falls off the freaking, you know, falls out of the chair next to himself, next to Potter, just laughing it off. Or, you know, all these different pranks go on throughout the episode. But it's one of those ones where it's like, you know, you're getting to see, you know, this group from the outside perspective, as well as seeing, you know, like, you know, him talking about throughout the episode, he's talking, you know, Sydney's talking about these people, you know, and how they they deal with this hell every day and everybody's got their own ways of dealing with it. And there's a point where he says, except like the only one I don't understand is, is BJ Honeycutt. Like he's, he's, you know, he's not chasing women. He's not, you know, listening to music. He's not, you know, trying to do these things. Like he's like, so it's like, I don't know how this, this pure soul is just dealing with this kind of stuff. And at the end of the episode, you find out that he is the mysterious prankster. And, you know, and that's that's basically his way of dealing with this, is he's playing pranks on everybody. Um, in fact, like, when he finds out, he's, like, he's sitting there writing, like, the end of his note or whatever. And he hears water running outside. And earlier in the episode, Frank Burns was digging a, uh, a trench Basically, for in case there was a mortar attack, you know, he could hide in the trench or whatever. Well, BJ's filling it with water and he comes out there and he's like, you, you're the prankster? And Honeycutt looks at him he's like, yeah, you want to help me out with this one? And he's like, sure. So, you know, Sigmund, he tells Sigmund to go over and write like, you know, like, you know, like mortar attack or, you know, so I can't remember what he yells, but he yells something to get Frank to like basically trigger jump into the bunker. And so Frank just takes this running leap and jumps into the bunker, which ends up basically being a pool. And it's this really funny kind of moment. But at the same time, like I said, when Friedman's there, you get these great thoughts of war is hell. And what do what what would this affect? How would this affect people seeing what they have to see on a daily basis? Um so yeah, so that's an episode called Dear Sigmund. I want to say it's in season. I want to say that was in season four. Um, 
The next one I'm talking about is actually the one where he's there and he's injured. And it's because Sigmund gets Dr. Sidney Friedman, not Sigmund. Dr. Sidney Friedman gets injured because he was at the front lines, like basically working with this, this kid. Um, and I think it was like a mortar attack happened or whatever. And both of them were injured in the thing, but Friedman just got like, you know, he's got a banged up head. Um, and so throughout the, throughout the episode, it's kind of like him dealing with, you know, okay, he got injured because he had to be at the front lines helping this kid. But this kid at the same time, like wants nothing to do with him. This kid like resents him because supposedly he worked with the kid before and got the kid's head cleared and they just sent him right back to the front lines to see more of exactly the reason he was, you know, messed up in the first place kind of thing. So he, you know, he's dealing with that. But at the same time, you have this text of like, everybody's kind of at each other's throats because, you know, it's kind of adding up on everybody. Um, Oh, by the way, this episode was called war of nerves. Um, And, but it all kind of accumulates in them having this giant bonfire just because uh, two guys were supposed to originally, they were just supposed to burn like uh, these uniforms from, I want to say it's POWs that had come in that they had patched up, but they had like lice or whatever. So they had to burn them. But then by the end of the episode, like they've thrown everything on top of these frick, this freaking thing, and they're just going to have this massive bonfire. And at first, Potter's fighting it, like you know, like what are you guys doing? You're idiots, blah blah blah. And see, Sigmund, Sydney pulls him aside. He's like, listen, this may be just what they need to get this, you know, to break this this funk, so to speak. So Potter's like, you know, you know takes away his order or tells everybody, you know, like we're going to have one hell of a bonfire that night. And it kind of accumulates. And then, like I said, they light this thing on fire, but then they start throwing extra stuff on it. Like, you know, they throw a bunk on it. And the funny thing there is, you know, you know, Charles is already there at this point in time. So it had to be in season eight. Um, you know, he's like, where did you get a bunk? He's like, you know, like, why would you throw your bunk on there? He's like, the, and Pierce and Mac and, or, Honeycut look at him is like, oh, it's not that big a deal. It was your bunk anyways, you know, kind of thing. But then you also get, you know, the end of the episode, you know, the last words from Sydney are like, you know, basically the, this kid that Sydney was working with is getting sent out. And Hawkeye and McIntyre, I keep saying McIntyre. Honeycutt are trying to get this kid to like basically understand what Sydney is doing. Um, and the kid set agrees to talk to Sydney and basically tells him he'll never forgive him for, you know, for just basically getting him cleared to go right back to hell kind of thing. Um, and you get this really great moment where Sydney, you know, they're standing around the fire and they've all kind of thrown random shit on this fire at this point in time. And Sydney makes commies like, you know, I, I almost envy you guys. You know, it's like you guys do a surgery. You get to see the, you know, the, the benefits right away. You know, you get to see this kid heal and go on his, with his life. The only way I'll know if I, the, the only way I know I've done my job is if I never have to see this kid again kind of thing. And it's, so you kind of see the, 
the turmoil within his head of dealing with the fact that, you know, like, is what he's doing right? Like, he's these kids are seeing horrible things, and he's he's helping them deal with it, but not so that they can go on with their lives, but chances are just to go right back to the front lines and get shot again or see something even worse. Um, so, yeah, that's... That is War of Nerves, and I really like that one. Um, the next episode I chose only because of the the way they did it. Um, I couldn't find any... like it, it was not the first episode of television to be filmed this way, but supposedly it was the first one to be successful, and that's an episode called Point of View, which the entire episode is told in the first person from the, pers- the, the patient. So it's like you see him out on patrol with his group. You see them get attacked and you you know like basically you like you you know you are you are seeing everything from his point of view. So like you see them like you know patching him up in the in the middle of this field and trying to get him ready to get carried away. You see the helicopter ride to the mash. You see them working on him up until you know they put anest- you know uh, give him the anesthesia to put him out. And the rest of the episode is kind of just them, you know, like them interacting. So, like, you only see the key characters when they're in the room with him. So, a lot of this episode is, it's really well done. And it, I mean, it really has, it really has no overall, like, I don't think, I can't really say it has a massive bearing on most of the rest of the show. But it is this really cool kind of event episode that they do that really it really has its own like standing kind of to me. It's like, you know, it's, it's a unique episode that, you know, could have failed miserably, but it didn't. Um, so yeah. Um, okay. I have these two backwards. Um, next one I'm going to talk about is a great episode for Charles Emmons, Emerson Winchester, the third. Um, and really, he's he's kind of the main character of this one, and I I was kind of happy with it for that. Because um, David Alden Steers really plays this one well. Um, it's called The Life You Save, and it's... In the beginning of the episode, they're basically, you know, they get a bunch of wounded coming in, and then a sniper is attacking, and Honeycutt and Winchester are, like, under this truck, basically like trying to keep this kid alive till they can get the sniper fire cleared and they can get him into the, the hospital, um, for surgery. And I want to say they get him in there, but the kid dies anyways, but on their way out, like, or no, sorry, it was before they even get into the surgical, like the OR, he takes his hat off and he goes to hang it and he notices like basically a bullet went through his hat. So like he was inches, like not even an inch away from having his head shot off by this, uh, this sniper. And it really shakes Charles, um, to the point. Oh no, that's right. No, the kid, the kid doesn't die. That's right. The kid does. Well, technically the kid dies for like three minutes, but they save his life. And so for the, like, a good chunk of the episode, like he's constantly trying to talk to this kid and trying to figure out, did the kid see anything on the other side? Like when he was, when he was dead, did he see anything? Were there lights? Was there nothing? You know, like he, he's going through this big, big battle within his head of, you know, 
about death. And so much so that he's actually like harassing this patient to the point that like BJ tells him like he doesn't want him near the patient anymore. Like what he's doing is horrible. And so by the end of the episode, Charles gets the idea to go to, um, I think it's called Battalion Aid. It's basically the hospital where they just quickly throw bandages on them to get them on the helicopter to get them to, to the mash. Um, in hopes of being there when a kid pa- will pass so he can find out, is there something more beyond this life kind of thing? And it makes this really touching moment where like, you know, he is there and they're working on this kid and it's clear they can't save him. And he holds this kid's hand as he's dying and he's asking him questions, but the kid is clearly, you know, like slipping because he's passing on. And you get this moment of kind of clarity where he realizes, you know, like maybe he's being stupid on this, but at the same time, he kind of does get his get his answers because I want to say the last thing the kid says is something like he smells he smells something from like childhood or something like that. <clears throat> so it's like you know he gets this kind of answer that maybe there is something, maybe there isn't, but it really doesn't matter. And you know the the episode ends as he just hangs this hat that he he was playing with the hat for like a lot of the episode, like because it was. Like he's constantly sticking his finger through the hole in the hat. And, you know, so yeah, it does this really good job at kind of pushing like the character themselves to be like to grow as far as like, you know, like maybe everything he he was thinking matter doesn't really matter. But at the same time, it's like he is very kind of selfish with this pursuit of what he wants to know. And maybe he gets his answer. Maybe he doesn't. They never really make that very clear. But he does see, like, you know, he does seem at peace by the end of the episode, at least, with his near-death experience. <clears throat> and that brings me to the last episode I'm going to talk about, which is the the best episode to the show in many ways. And that is the finale to me, the best season series finale I have ever seen. There's probably people who think there are better ones, but to me, this one is just it. And that is goodbye, farewell, and amen. Um, I talked about this one a little bit with Tony. Um, of course, I hadn't rewatched it in a while till just recently. So it is a great episode because it wraps up everybody's like everybody has a satisfactory wrap up by the end of the episode. And it's so it's great for that. I mean, you have, yes, you have the very strong thing of, you know, opening in a psych ward and, you know, you don't know why, but Hawkeye is in, you know, in this psych ward for basically, you know, like something happened and he, he snapped like he there's something he has like not come to terms with or whatever. And so a good chunk of the, like, I think it's like a two hour episode is him in this psych ward, you know, as the, the war's wrapping up, of course, that cause they're, you know, while he's in the psych ward, there's a talk of, you know, a, the, the talk of, um, 
you know, the, the, basically the armistice is going to come down and like, there's going to be the ceasefire and everything's going to stop. And he's, so he's, you know, he's dealing with this and Sydney's there, which is just an amazing, amazing point to it because like him and Sydney always had like really great chemistry on screen. And, Sydney knows there's something more that happened because Hawkeye was not that easy to to rattle to this point. And so he's constantly pushing him. And then, you know, like I said, it kind of like it goes from like, oh, yeah, they just went on this trip to the beach and they came back. There was no big deal. But then there was something about, um, you know, like they had picked up this soldier and he just need, you know, like can we get a bottle back here? This kid really needs a bottle, but it's a bottle of whiskey and the kid drinks a whiskey and blah, blah, blah. And then that becomes, no, the bottle he was calling for was a bottle of plasma because this kid was injured at some point in time. And Sydney's like, well, where did that come from? He's like, oh, that's right. We picked up some, you know, we picked up some, uh, some civilians and some, some soldiers on the way back. And, you know, he had taken hit and there was a, there was a patrol that was coming by. So we had to, you know, we had to pull off the road and be quiet and whatnot. And then it pushes a little bit further and, you know, it's, you still don't know exactly what happened on this bus. And then it pushes to the point, like when they were, you know, while they were trying to, you know, like letting this patrol pass by because the ceasefire hadn't kicked in yet, he, um, like there was a lady with a chicken on the back of the bus and the chicken wouldn't be quiet. And so he goes back and says like, could you just keep it quiet? Keep it quiet, please. You know, it's endangering us. And Sydney's like, what's so important about this? You know, like what is the big deal about a chicken? And he's like, well, I, I just told her, you know, she needed to keep quiet. All I was asking was for her to keep her quiet. I didn't ask her to kill it. And, She's like, why, you know, she killed her chicken. And he's like, no. And then it hits him. It's like, it wasn't a chicken. It was a baby that was in her arms and the baby was crying. And in order to keep it quiet, he, she smothered it to the point that she killed her baby. And he feels responsible for it because he was begging her to keep this, this baby quiet. And the moment it, it hits him, just like Alan Alda just, acts the shit out of this sequence and it's it's hard to watch without tearing up um as he realizes this and he you know he curses sydney for making him remember that even though you know you can kind of tell he knows he needed to come to terms with the fact of what happened that day or he was never going to get any better kind of thing um and that is that is a hard part to watch but then you know from there it kind of just it goes into the wrap up of, you know, like, yeah, you have, you know, everybody kind of realizing, you know, there's 12 hours till the ceasefire and everything ends and, <coughs> and all that kind of stuff. So you have all these people like, you know, like Margaret's constantly going like, okay, what is she going to do when she, like her plans change like eight times as she's, you know, uh, throughout the episode of like what she's going to be doing after, you know, after she's released and Charles is, you know, like upset early in the episode because, you know, like he, because he was still there, he couldn't, you know, they wouldn't take his application for the chief of thoracic surgery or thoracic medicine or whatever it is at whatever hospital it is. 
But, you know, Margaret, knowing how much it means to him, goes kind of over his head and talks to a family friend who runs the hospital and gets him the position. And so then you have Charles kind of facing the fact like he's, you know, he, he's not one to take handouts from people and that kind of stuff. And, um, another great storyline that plays out in that is the, the dealing with, uh, father Mulcahy, which I can't believe I haven't talked about him up until this point. The, you know, the, the chaplain of the mash who's, he in many ways like he he keeps a lot of people sane even though he you know, he he never really like he, throughout the show he kind of argues that he never really knows whether he's really doing any good there because really all he can do in the you know the OR is sometimes help by you know handing towels or whatever or performing last rites when someone's passing, um, but his his effect on the the entire camp is amazing. But in this episode he. They have a bunch of POWs in the, um, like caged up because basically till, you know, the military, the, the, the higher ups can get somebody to gra- come grab them. And a shelling starts happening because there, there was a tank that got abandoned on the, on the premises. And so Mulcahy goes out there to try to get the, the POWs out because he doesn't, you know, they're, they're basically stuck in this little cage and a mortar hits not too far away from him, and he starts losing his he. So he starts to go deaf, and it's this great story for him, like where he doesn't want people to know. Honeycutt's the only one who knows he's gone deaf. Um, but he doesn't want anybody to know because he, you know, his his service there is still very much needed. Like you know, there's a, there's an orphanage that if he gets discharged and let go. You know, there's nobody to protect this or there's nobody to help this orphanage kind of thing. And he, so his story kind of is really good. But then you also have, you know, like BJ gets like they they mess up some paperwork and they discharge him early. So he leaves, but then he only gets so far as Guam and then his like they couldn't get him a, tr- a plane out of Guam back to San Francisco. So he ends up getting sent back by the military for the final days, which is kind of good because like, you know, essentially he leaves before Hawkeye gets out of the mental Institute and Hawkeye, after going through all this stuff with Trapper leaving without saying goodbye is very beat up about this. But then, you know, they get, they get their final goodbye and it's this great, you know, you got these great ones, but it's, it's a great wrap up for everything in the show. It has good, you know, you got good laughs. You've got some, you got some very serious situations in there, like you know, the all the stuff with Hawkeye. But you also have a lot of stuff where, like you know, like Hawkeye gets back into the OR at a point, and he doesn't like. You, you can tell he's like, he's uncomfortable with it, but he has to push through, and you know, so he kind of finds his peace once again with the situation, and it's really good that the final scene of the show is like, you know, like the whole, for a whole chunk of the sh- this episode, you know, Hawkeye's like, you know, hounding BJ about like the fact BJ doesn't want to say goodbye. He doesn't like saying goodbye. Um, and he's like, come on, there's nothing wrong with saying it. Just, just say it. Goodbye. How about a farewell? You know, kind of thing. Well, at the end of the episode, you know, like, tra- or, I almost said, tra- uh, God damn it. BJ gives, 
Hawkeye a ride up to the helicopter, you know, up to the the helicopter pad on his motorcycle. And as Hawkeye's getting into the helicopter, he like he kind of yells, tries to yell over the sound of the the helicopter blades that he left a message for him um, on the ground. And he gets on his motorcycle and rides away. And as they're flying, Hawkeye looks down and kind of has a smile and it pans down in rocks on the helipad. He wrote goodbye. Um, And it really, you know, like uh, Mike Farrell, the actor that played Honeycutt was like, yeah, that was really, you know, yes, that, that served a story purpose for, you know, Honeycutt saying goodbye to Hawkeye, even though he didn't want to. But it also serves a purpose of like kind of the final goodbye to the fans that spent 11 seasons with this show um, through the ups and downs. And it's a great moment and really encapsulates what the show could mean to anybody who gives it the time. Um, so yeah, that's, this episode's gone longer than I expected it to. So, um, I guess I'm just gonna start wrapping up here then. Um, so I'm going to say thank you for listening to, and to, you know, everyone out there, but they thank you to everybody who supported me through this. Um, even though probably barely any of them listened, thank you to everybody who reached out to me over the last couple weeks. I've had a rough go of it at points and a lot of people reached out to me and it really made it clear that I wasn't as alone as I thought I was. Um, and so, yeah, for this one, I'm actually going to use a different farewell. I'm going to use a farewell that is said both in the first episode of Sidney Friedman and the last episode, he actually utters it in his last scene of the show, of the final episode. And that is, ladies and gentlemen, take my advice. Pull down your pants and slide on the ice. I have no idea what it means, but I love every second of it. So I guess I will talk to you guys in two weeks. Bye-bye.